Welcome to Transatlantic Takeaway, which explores the impact of key political developments on the European Union and the United States. Our show is a joint production by Common Ground Berlin and the German Marshall Fund of the United States. I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. And I'm your host, Rachel Tausenfreund. Just over a year ago, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz made a bold speech to the Bundestag pledging to end Germany's long-standing military-averse policies. We must therefore ask ourselves, what capabilities does Putin's Russia have and what capabilities do we need to counter this threat today and in the future? One thing is clear. We must invest significantly more in the security of our country in order to protect our freedom and our democracy in this way. And to mark the anniversary of this sea change, Schultz, in a speech to the Bundestag last month, hammered home the need for a defense-capable Europe. It must be clear to us all the more, our never again means that a war of aggression will never again be used as a political tool. Our never again means that Putin's imperialism must not prevail. But has the German government actually delivered on the Seitenwende, or the change of an era? And what impact has it had on Germany's geopolitical relationships? Joining us in our Berlin studio to answer these questions and more are the German Marshall Fund's Guido Goldman Distinguished Scholar for Geostrategy, Thomas Kleiner-Brockhoff, and Jana Puglerin, Senior Policy Fellow and Head of the Berlin Office at the European Council on Foreign Relations. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thomas, let's start with you. Remind us what the key points were in the Chancellor's Seitenwende speech in February 2022. Which, if any of those pledges, has he been most successful at implementing? It was about a changed attitude and a changed perspective vis-a-vis Russia that he started to see as a threat, which I don't think was the common assessment before. Secondly, energy transformation. And thirdly, the equipment and the state of readiness of the Bundeswehr. And if you ask me what has he delivered on, it is very clear. It's energy transformation and the rest is a work in progress. Jana, do you agree? I mean, what stands out for you as the most notable accomplishment of Olaf Scholz's historic speech and his follow-up to the Bundestag in early March? So when I look back, I detect something like a paradox of the Zeitenwende or a tragedy. And that is a hell lot has changed, I think, in Europe. Um, We have seen tremendous steps forward. We have seen taboos broken. And just in a nutshell, uh, we've come from wanting to send 5,000 helmets to Ukraine to 18 Leopard 2 tanks. I think that tells us in a nutshell how much has been achieved and how far Germany has come. But the tragedy or the paradox starts when you look at what would be needed and what should have been achieved, especially uh, in security and defense, but also helping and supporting Ukraine. So I think Germany is not where it should be. It has not moved at the speed of relevance, but at uh, the speed of Germany. (laughs) (laughs) That's not always a good thing. (laughs) No, that that was uh, at times incredibly slow. If you look at it from, oh, where has Germany been, I don't know, three, four years ago, then it's amazing. It's great. I mean, we've discussed forever about the F-35 procurement or whether we should or shouldn't um, buy armed drones. And now all that is decided But if you look at the challenges, if you look at what kind of Ukraine support really would mean if we would do it in a sustainable manner and how much of a stretch it is, not only for Germany, but for all Europeans to come up with just 62 main battle tanks for Ukraine, it just shows you that we're not there um, and we're 
as I said, not moving at the speed of relevance. So you said we're not moving quickly or Germany is not moving quickly enough to really help Ukraine the way it would need to be helped. But what would you say in general, if you were to say, you know, a year, a little bit more than a year past the site in Venda, how would you measure the impact on the support for Ukraine? Whether we help them to win the war. Uh, that for me is uh, the decisive factor. Um, I mean, I don't want to bash Germany too much here because that has been done elsewhere and for a long time. So I want to acknowledge for once that Germany is now, I think, together with the United Kingdom, kind of the number two uh, supporter for Ukraine. Number one is the United States. So um, a lot has been done in financial aid, humanitarian aid and also military aid. But just if I kind of recall how long it took us to take the Leopard 2 decision or just in general the decision to send heavy weapons to Ukraine. Also the infantry fighting vehicles which were decided just three weeks prior to the Leopard um, tanks. So for me I'm just wondering what could have been achieved if we had provided Ukraine with this kind of material last autumn when they kind of had the offensive in the war. So, Thomas, Jana mentioned um, Germany is second to the UK in Europe, but the US is obviously playing a major role in support for Ukraine. How has the Seitenwende affected the US view of Germany or US-German relations? At first, I thought this was an exercise in fence mending. The two major grievances that the United States had with Germany, and that is across the board, bipartisan, No 2% and Nord Stream were gone in days. And that that would be a new beginning. And it would take away not only the grievance, but would also open the pathway to a more balanced security architecture transatlantically. And that was true for a number of months until people started to doubt, given, as Jana just described, the slowness of the process, the lost year at the Defense Department until a new secretary took over and changed the tone and the direction of travel and the speed of travel, it seems, dramatically. The old Germany is back in the minds of these American interlocutors, and it's no longer a bipartisan attitude. But let me uh, just uh, respond to something that Jana just said. If your threshold for Zeitenwende, to measure Zeitenwende, is whether we supported Ukraine to win. Just in this category, support for Ukraine, not mm -hmm. overall, not on energy yeah. or... Yes, understood. But that is not what the goal of this chancellor is. The goal of this chancellor is not to have uh, Ukraine lose, which is very different from have Ukraine win. So from his own perspective, he's doing exactly what he set out to do, which is why you don't like it. <laughs> Uh, and the second piece, which bears remembering, is the speech came on February 27th, three days after the war started. And at that point, uh, Joe Biden and Olaf Scholz were talking like uh, singing from the same song sheet uh, when saying every inch of NATO territory. Remember, we thought, many of us thought, that Ukraine was going to collapse. And it was about defending NATO territory, not about defending Ukraine. This is something that came post-Zeitenwende. 
Now, we all think we're not traveling at the speed of relevance, a term that I agree with, and that is, I think, the German dilemma and in some ways a tragedy. And that has been going on for years, long pre-Zeitenwende, that we all thought we were changing in relevant ways, except that reality changed quicker and the gap widened rather than closed, <laughs> and here we are again. Jano, you wanted to add something? Yeah, just, I think in the beginning, we all understood the sense of urgency, right after um, the war started, because we all, and also the German population, thought Russia will be at our doorstep in Europe um, and we need to protect our NATO territory. And I think also when you look at the speech and the energy in it and the revolutionary spirit, I think it was really driven by a sense of urgency. But I think, and here maybe it's another tragedy, but the more Ukraine was successful and the less threatening to us Russia became, the more this sense of urgency vanished. And it's still, I think, yes, there is this understanding we need to support uh, Ukraine and at least Russia cannot win this war. It would be devastating for us. But I have the impression that all of a sudden we had more time, more patience. And I personally don't understand it because I think the threat has not gone away. But that is how I sense the shifting tone in the German debate from basically this revolutionary spirit to what uh, Claudia Maillot recently has called evolutionary spirit. And I think that captures it quite nicely. But didn't you want to, and so, sorry to interject, Jana, didn't you want to see the upside and the positive? <laughs> uh, let's, put, let's, find, let's find a way to do that. And I would say, and I often say that to uh, non-German interlocutors, this train has left the station. That's true. It is when you see Germany moving not fast enough, not decisive enough. This is based, however, on some fundamental change. That a chancellor comes out and says, as he did in the quoted passage, talking about Russian imperialism time and time again. The nuclear saber rattling has reached every corner of this country. There's questions you don't have to ask any longer and I think this is going to go the German way. It's going to be incremental, it's going to be sustained, but over time it's going to have a massive I, change. I like the German way because once we kind of do something, it takes us a long time to make up our minds, and, but once we are there, we are really committed and we are kind of the last uh, to leave, uh, <laughs> I don't know, Afghanistan and uh, yeah, many other theaters. So I think... That's well, real well, German we're commitment. <laughs> we're definitely committed. I mean, Germany has delivered more than $3 billion dollars or euros, sorry, in weapons, making it, I think, the fourth biggest military donor. I know you mentioned after the UK, but I think Poland might come before that. And no longer is Germany being ridiculed for its contribution. I mean, we're not talking about helmets anymore, as you mentioned. But Scholz's plan to enhance the German military or Bundeswehr is seriously lagging, says Colonel André Wüstner, the head of German Armed Forces Association. Here's part of his recent interview with Bavarian Radio. Yes, we have 20 to 30 percent under contract now. But that doesn't mean the equipment is there. The fact is the Bundeswehr lost more or less a year. And by that, I don't mean the Bundeswehr itself, but the politics of implementation. We enter into contracts much too late. I'll give you an example. Last year in May, self-propelled howitzers were sent to Ukraine and everyone immediately acknowledged the need for quick replacements. If we're lucky, and thanks to the commitment of the new defense minister, they will be contracted just before Easter, and only after that happens will they be ordered. 
Jana, what do you see as the barriers to getting the German Bundeswehr into shape? Well, one of the big problems is that we don't have a sustainable plan so far, a financial plan. And that might sound strange uh, in the beginning because we just kind of declared that we are now using this um, 100 billion Sondervermögen, which we do. But the Sondervermögen is basically a special pot that was supposed to finance big projects that weren't financed before. The thing is, initially in the speech, Scholz said it's the 100 billion special fund plus from now on 2%. This vanished within days. And from there on, it was we are spending 2% on average in the next basically five years, taking also the money from the Sondervermögen into account. The problem is that so far we have frozen Maybe that's a bit technical, but we have frozen the regular defense budget. So there is a regular German defense budget at around 50 billion euro. We've frozen it in the midterm financial planning um, until 2026. And the plan is now to use the Sondervermögen and to spend it. But if we don't manage to increase the regular defense budget at the same time, that could basically leave us in a situation where, let's say in 2026, um, the Sondervermögen is spent. We have more capabilities that need to be maintained. We have more personnel. We have higher personnel costs um, also due to inflation. But we come back to the old 50 billion and that is not sustainable. And what I think is necessary to make the Zeitenwende sustainable and also to show how serious the German government is about it is to increase the regular defense budget. Boris Pistorius, the new defense minister, has asked for 10 billion more for next year, for 2024. Basically, that is a test case for the German government because um, the last budget that this government will be able to finalize before we enter the election cycle. And if the priorities of the new government are not mirrored in the annual budget of 2024, I think that will make a miserable (laughs) case for our uh, seriousness uh, about all of this. And I know that it sounds uh, difficult for German taxpayers, but the 100 billion Sondervermögen will not be enough. We know that already. And we need to a steady increase so that we don't basically drop from yeah 100 billion and Sondervermögen fund 2% to less than we do now. Thomas, building on what Jana said about the Sondervermögen and the budget, I don't know who, who it was who said, you know, show me your budget and I'll tell you what you really care about. And the budget of Germany has for a long time shown that they don't care about the Bundeswehr. Um, as recently as 2015, there were stories of the you know Bundeswehr training with sticks instead of guns in NATO exercises. So what do you think? I mean, is your view the same as I mean, it's certainly not the 2%. It's that, certainly not yeah. the 2%. Do you think this budget will be approved? Do you think Germany will hit the 2%? And what about the 30,000 soldiers and, and 85 aircraft and ships for the new force model of NATO that's supposed to be in place by 2025. I mean, how realistic is any of this? Let me stick with a high note here. Ah. The train has left the station. <laughs> Thomas is the positive I'm voice be, today. Well, I'm, I have Jana next to me, so I want to portray some contrast here. The train has left the station in the minds of people. If only it had left the station uh, in terms of the budget. It is unconceivable that anybody, as the military commissioner uh, of the Bundeswehr, Eva Högel, did just a couple of months ago, said, actually, guys, we need $300 billion. Our defense minister says, we got to turn this around into a regularized budget. A sea change is the fact that I think you can now win elections by saying, you're not doing enough for our armed forces. Think about that in the last 30 years. 
So the mental change and the mental shift and the, what, what you can talk about and what people recognize is necessary is significant. I'm not sure it has reached everybody in our elites, especially not in the Bundestag. I'd be very surprised if Boris Pistorius gets his $10 billion that he asked for and credit him for turning this into a demand against his own government just in office. So I think Germany will do it, but too late with a horrible PR, with infighting of all sorts, uh, and most importantly, too late. There was a Polish article the other day, the headline of which was the German glacier. <laughs> and their speed of relevance, it can also be translated to the speed of threat. And we're not doing what is necessary given the threat that is out there. And that is the gap that I still am most concerned about, that the idea that there is an imperial Russia out there that will not stop once this war is over because it's the philosophy of an imperial state and that has consequences. I think that is not translated into budget and we have that way still to go. Jana, I think you wanted to add to that. Or? Yeah, because I think um, in a democracy you cannot talk about a sustainable policy change unless you have won an election, kind of on that ticket. And this government was not forced to prioritize. They have thrown a lot of money at the problem. So, for example, we have the 100 billion special fund for the Bundeswehr, but we have 200 billion to compensate um, kind of citizens and companies for the high energy prices, the so-called Doppelwumms. Um, and I think so far the government has thrown money at each and every problem, but now the problem is we are running out of money. And we have the liberals um, in government who are very strict uh, with kind of fiscal discipline. And at the moment, we have problems to get um, our budget together for 2024. Christian Lindner has said, uh, well, the ministries are asking for too much. Uh, there isn't enough money in the pot. You need to uh, reconsider your priorities. And that is what the government, I think, needs to do now and hasn't done so far. And I'm just wondering how much we want to prioritize security, because if the budget is not endless, then that means money for security and defense means maybe less money for the plan that the government has for additional support for children, for example, or other priorities that the government had when they came into office, because their original goal was the internal transformation of Germany. Their priority was not foreign policy, uh, let alone security and defense policy. Their priority was the green transition of this country um, and also to reform our infrastructure and also and, digital. Yeah, exactly. Digital, but also kind of bridges and <laughs> roads and kind of real infrastructure, which was neglected. So that's what basically united uh, this administration. And they all have their priorities. So something has to give. We're going to take a short break. Stay tuned for more discussion about the impact of the Zeitenwende. I'm Rachel Tausenfreund, one of the hosts of the German Marshall Fund's podcast, Out of Order. Join our conversations with leaders and experts on what the dark side of tech does to democracy, how the pandemic shapes geopolitics, and other topics of global order and disorder. You can find our episodes and miniseries at gmfus.org or wherever you find your podcasts. We are the German Marshall Fund of the United States, strengthening transatlantic cooperation since 1972. Hello, this is Abby, presenter and co-creator of Berlin Briefing. 
Do you find yourself having trouble understanding the news of the Hauptstadt, usually presented in German? If so, Berlin Briefing can help. We curate local top stories and present them in an 8-10 minute podcast in English every Monday through Friday. You can find us at berlinbriefing.de or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Transatlantic Takeaway, where we are talking about the Zeitenwende one year on. I'm Soraya Serhati Nelson of Common Ground Berlin. And I'm Rachel Tausenfreund of the German Marshall Fund. We're joined in the studio by GMF Guido Goldman Distinguished Scholar for Geostrategy, Thomas Kleinebrockhoff, and Jana Puglerin, Senior Policy Fellow and Head of the Berlin Office at the European Council on Foreign Relations. Thomas, before the break, we talked about the German government's performance with regard to the Zeitenwende. How would you rate the public change, the public Zeitenwende? Are they behind Olaf Scholz? Are they ahead of Olaf Scholz when it comes to standing up to Russia militarily or standing up to anyone militarily? I'd say ahead, but it's a guess. We, we know from polling there's not a single rally of any significance against the 100 billion. Think about that. There is no public outcry in the country of the peace movement where we've had hundreds of thousands on the street in, in the 80s. That's got to tell you something. The peace movement is now a movement for negotiations with Russia, but it is not one about equipping the defunct German military. Uh, at least they won't get any support for that. So that's one indicator. Polls is another indicator. Support for that strategy of equipping is high. So my sense is, like Jana says, choices will have to be made. The coalition agreement was a peacetime coalition agreement. Now we have a wartime situation in which we're not a belligerent, but certainly an interested and allied party. And that would need to have some reprioritization. And can I add something that yeah, I absolutely. find very positive for once? Because <laughs> Thomas is, is, is absolutely right. But I would add that even when it comes to support for Ukraine, I mean, you're right, we see some so-called peace movement asking for negotiations, questioning also uh, the lethal aid for Ukraine. But still, I think they are a minority and that the government was able to maintain public support for Ukraine throughout the past year. And also, like with the Leopard 2 tanks, um, I think there wasn't a majority in the very beginning, but once the decision was taken, you had a majority of Germans on board. And I think that is really remarkable that the Germans remain so committed. I believe also there were a lot of worries about the energy crisis, high energy prices, or inflation, you know, changing public opinion on this. But I don't think it's really been the case, right? No, it hasn't been the case. Olaf Scholz will argue that that is because of his balanced policy, and that is because... And the uh, Doppelwurms. Uh, yes, this balanced <laughs> policy is part of Doppelwurms <laughs> is part of that. Um, but he, he will argue that his publicly displayed doubt about his hand-wringing is actually part of a communication strategy, not to be gung-ho. You can't win in this country if you're gung-ho. Other countries, including the Ukrainian foreign minister, said... Well, they say no, only to say yes in the end. And we wonder out here in Kiev why they are doing this to themselves. Because as a communication strategy, that would seem awkward. Well, to a domestic audience, that is, as Jana has rightly put, the strategy to keep people on board. And when you look at the result, support for Ukraine is crumbling in the United States. Not the case here. 
Is that the case, though, Yana, given the fact that it's been more than a year now that the war has gone on and there's no end in sight? It's not like we can say, oh, a few more of these and Ukraine is going to win or a few more of these and Russia is going to win. So is there a danger of German public support waning, you know, of going away at this stage? And as uh, Thomas mentioned, in the U.S., it is starting to come down a little bit. I think that is something we need to worry about, especially because of the high inflation and If the war is going on, including during the next winter, we don't know how that will play out. Um, Look at what's happening now in Germany. I mean, we have a super big strike, um, which usually does not happen that often in Germany. I mean, we are not France and we are always proud that we are not France. But now, I mean, people went on strike pretty regularly, not only public transport, but public service more broadly, and they want uh, an increase in their salary. Yeah, I mean, today is actually a notable day that we're recording the fact that there is a Bundesweit, you know, a national strike of all transit and airplanes and everything else. That's not as common here, as you say, as is in France. Yeah, so there might be a trickling down effect. High inflation, higher prices um, for food particularly. And if people really start to feel the burden, I don't know. But as Thomas has said, I think the support for Ukraine and the high rates throughout the year are remarkable. But of course, we need to worry about the sustainability especially. I think what drove this support was Ukrainian successes on the battlefield because I mean, this story is just remarkable. As Thomas has said initially, and I include myself amongst the group of those people believing that Ukraine would be overrun and Zelensky would leave Kiev, and that didn't happen. And then the Russian armed forces performed so miserably. We saw also how grateful the Ukrainians were um, kind of when they could hug their beloved ones that were just liberated. And I think all that helped a lot to convey the message, this is not a lost case. Um, Ukraine is fighting for its survival as a sovereign state, but this is worth supporting because there is actually a chance. If we now see a trench uh, war, a war of attrition for months without any movement, I could well imagine that a debate about the purpose of all of this uh, and yeah, whether now is enough and now we need to freeze the conflict and we need negotiations, whether that will not gain um, an attraction. Thomas, is there another global giant who we haven't talked about who is coming into this uh, equation, if you will? And so I'm wondering, uh, and that will be China, of course. And so what I'm wondering is, have German leaders learned any lessons when it comes to dealing with their largest trading partner, which, of course, is China, uh, from the failures of Wandel durch Handel or change through trade with Russia? The first thing to say is that this was not a German invention, but that the idea that interdependence secures peace is a common Western theme. I think we took it a little further than others and under specific conditions and also turn it into a religion. Sometimes I call this the Swiss army knife of German foreign policy. It's a universal tool. You can use it for all seasons. And that has turned out not to be the case. And I think that's another big realization in this process over the last year, that there is no such thing as the Swiss army knife of German foreign policy, and it's certainly not called Ostpolitik. The debate, however, as to how far a change should go is raging. There are those who say we shouldn't commit the same mistake again, and then the others, the other side, their rallying cry would be China is not Russia. Mm-hmm. 
Um, when you look at the upcoming visit of President Macron, who just has Mr. Scholz on board uh, with uh, the sentence, we need to engage China in order to put pressure on Russia. That is not a position, as opposed to what Mr. Macron told us, shared across Europe. So I do think that Mr. Scholz is far on the on the engagement side, while German political elites are divided on this issue. And there is a hefty debate going on, including about the still unpublished uh, German national security strategy. And the China strategy. And the China strategy subsequent to that. And the China piece of the national security strategy is one of the two or three points of contention. So your question is absolutely correct, but the answer is we don't know yet. <laughs> Jana, sticking on the thing we don't know about, uh, which is China and the impact it's going to have, some people are saying that part of what China is attempting to do as uh, positioning itself as a mediator is to try to divide either the Europeans from other Europeans or particularly the U.S. and the Europeans. Do you think they're having any kind of success? Are there enough people in Germany or elsewhere in Europe who are wanting to see them as a kind of honest broker or mediator? Actually, so far, I'm underwhelmed by the impact that China had. I mean, they proposed this, I mean, we called it peace plan. I think it's not really a peace plan, but we called it a peace plan in the media. But I think the German government, although I agree with Thomas that the chancellor always says he doesn't want to decouple and we need functioning globalization still, But on the peace plan, I think the German government was rather reluctant. So, yeah, I don't know how to read them, honestly, because there is, I think, this strong notion we need China to deal with Russia. And China can be our ally, not because we share the same interests, but because China doesn't have an interest in a prolonged war. I actually think they have a real interest in a very long war because, I mean, look at it from their perspective. I mean, Russia is cutting ties with Europe. They do this for a very long time now. They started after 2014. They keep on saying this. And now we have cut ties with Russia. And I agree with Thomas, what he says previously. I think there is no going back for Germany to our old uh, approach vis-a-vis uh, -vis Russia. I think that ship has sailed. So... Russia will be dependent on China much more than before the war. China can buy their cheap energy, has an influential ally worldwide, and might feel quite comfortable with uh, the idea to have a junior partner uh, who is really completely dependent on them and who has no alternatives. So maybe that is in the, in the Chinese interest. Also to have the Americans engaged in Europe can only be in China's interest, no? Because every dollar that is invested in Europe is not invested in, in the Indo-Pacific kind of the attention is uh, divided e between the European theater and the Asian theater. So what's not to like from a Chinese perspective? I mean, what's not to like would be kind of, I think, to see uh, Vladimir Putin actually losing his position. <laughs> That, I think, is not really in China's interest. There was this wonderful moment last week at the summit between Xi and Putin uh, caught on camera when uh, Xi said to Putin, we're seeing changes that we haven't seen in a hundred years and we're here to shape them. In Xi's perception, this is the alliance that shapes the 21st century. And we're now caught in this game. They are trying to put a wedge between us and the Americans. Uh, we're trying to put a wedge between the Chinese and the Russians. That's part of the positioning that's ongoing. I can understand the, uh, 
this government and the chancellor when they say we've just decoupled from Russia at a very high price and we can all see it in our energy or we'll be able to see it in our energy bills. And I don't want to do the same thing simultaneously uh, with China. But the key word here is, is simultaneously. We have to change our approach and de-risk our relationship with China, seems evident to me. It's not talking about decoupling, but about de-risking. And de-risking is also not a verbal affair. It has to be followed by some action. And I don't see the strategy towards de-risking yet. I hear talk about de-risking. Can that I be positive? <laughs> I love it, Jana. Go, go, please. No, but what encourages me when it comes to China and Germany is that um, the government actually now is investigating, I mean, very late, but uh, into the Huawei issue much more. I mean, we had a Huawei discussion one and a half years ago. We had legislation, but still companies like the German Telekom or the Deutsche Bahn, the German train uh, company, they use a lot of uh, Huawei components. Now the government is starting an investigation and it is looking at security risks, which at least is an encouraging sign that this connection between economic ties and critical infrastructure and security risks has started to sunk in the government. Another example would be offshore windcraft, where um, now I think the government is also closely looking into an offshore wind park in the North Sea where converters are used that would basically enable a Chinese company to shut down the wind park. And that this is at least in the focus, um, I think, of uh, Robert Habeck's Ministry for uh, the Economy and Climate Change is progress. So I think there is change underway also in the perception of China, in the business community, in the government. Yeah. So we're talking about de-risking when it comes to a very big partner of Germany's. But uh, the other big partner of Germany's is the United States. And we talked a bit about the Seitenwende and how that sort of impacted relations with the Biden administration. But there's an election coming up in the United States, as we know. So what do you think about the potential impact of the Zeitenwende or the uh, success or lack of success in the Zeitenwende if we see a Ron DeSantis or we see a Donald Trump in the White House? Well, I start and then Thomas can say all the uh, clever things. But um, <laughs> so what yeah, worries me, <laughs> no, what worries me coming, be, being the pessimist here again, is that if I look back, I think Olaf Scholz's closest partner was no European um, head of state or government, but it was uh, Joe Biden. And he made his decisions dependent on the decisions that were taken in the White House. Clearest expression was the tank uh, debate and decision to link uh, the leopards to the Abrams. And sometimes, I mean, when you talk to people from um, the chancery, you always have the impression that this is kind of a big, fat transatlantic love fest. And I think it really is. I think Scholz and Biden are very much aligned in their thinking and their risk assessment and their priorities and what they want to achieve in Ukraine. But it also feels as if Biden would be president and live forever. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just wondering how much of a plan B there is, actually, because um, 
Yeah, we have kind of tied ourselves so closely to the destiny of the United States again. Strategic autonomy is, I think, a dead horse now. Nobody wants to ride it, uh, with the exception of France, of course. But <laughs> <laughs> but I think the questions that led to the debate uh, about strategic autonomy are still the same. They are still relevant. So how can we basically hedge against a not-so-friendly American administration that will put way more pressure on allies and will see allies yeah, uh, differently and not predominantly Prominently as an asset, but as a liability first and foremost. Okay, let's talk about plan A first before you do revert to plan B, <laughs> if I could. And plan A is actually a pretty positive one to play on that theme again. Um, I think this war has told us things we didn't know before. And it has for the first time, not in aspiration, but as a real pathway, opened the door to Europeans largely and in conventional terms being able to defend themselves. First argument there to say is we've discovered Putin and Russia not 10 feet tall. The second is we gained three new allies, two of which NATO allies, very capable and uh, geographically uh, wonderfully located for that purpose. Thirdly, Europeans, including the Germans, are finally doing what uh, they said they would do in terms of uh, defense spending. Fourthly, or almost doing, <laughs> almost doing, or doing kind of doing, on the, on the, or on trying the to, very on the hard. No, let's look. Let's look at numbers. I mean, we we can make fun of this, but what the French have been doing, what the Poles are doing, what the Germans are about to do, that adds up to real numbers and real changes. So I think for the first time since the end of the Cold War, there is a real pathway to European conventional self-defense in which, and by the way, the Americans have shown that they can assist in defending uh, Europe without engaging in combat. So I think the argument that some are making here is, I, I see uh, Jana already doubting, the argument that this alliance is toast, I, I think that's a premature judgment. I think we have to change a few things, and it is true that the outcome of the debate in the United States, whether these are two separate theaters, China and Russia, or whether they are communicating vessels in that time, as, as you have said, that allies in Europe would be a liability. The outcome of that debate, we don't know yet. It is a danger. I don't deny that. But I don't want to move to plan B if for the first time I have a realistic plan A. And the plan B is Europe does it itself because America is gone is the real disaster for me because it is clear to me and the war has shown that that Europeans will run in all kinds of different direction if not with uh, the United States uh, leading the way as it did in October. That doesn't mean it needs to supply the same level Uh, of military support, but political uh, uh, unification of the West is a task that America has taken on this time, and under changed conditions, I can very well see in the future, but that is not a done deal. Europeans have to do their part. Yeah, and exactly that's, I think, where my problem starts, because I agree with you that um, without the United States, the Europeans would run in all directions, and to organize European defense amongst Europeans doesn't uh, sound very promising. At the same time, I'm just looking at the incredibly important role that the United States has played uh, during this war. We can, I think, fairly say that without the US, um, there would be no Ukraine. 
when you just look at the miserable state of the not only German armed forces, but European armed forces, and how much we are still dependent on American enablers to just do anything. After the Afghanistan withdrawal and the evacuation of Kabul airport, everybody um, talked about a wake-up call and this is not acceptable and nothing has changed. I mean, if we would need to evacuate uh, Kabul airport today again, uh, we would be in the same miserable uh, condition. And I don't need a plan B or A, I would love to see a functioning NATO, but I think in order to have one, the Europeans really, really need to do more. And I mean, we know this, I cannot hear myself saying this because I've said it 120,000 times already, but it remains true. And this is what sometimes is disheartening me. I don't know if in Spain or Italy um, there is a Zeit then on its way or in Portugal. And I don't see the Europeans playing their part. And I see them also being very comfortable with the US leadership and not wanting to play their part, being really happy with the US leading. And I don't know if that is on offer any longer, kind of the, the Biden model. <laughs> and I don't blame Spain for its geography. If you are farther away from the theater, uh, then you have different threat assessment. And that is just natural. The only difference that the United States is, it's a, it's a global power. It's the world's superpower, and every country is its neighbor. But to Spain, that's a different thing. That is what the Poles are blaming us for. We are not seeing the threat in the same terms as, as they do, but there is a function of geography here. It is natural that we see things that way. We need to find workable compromises, continental compromises, to be able to deal with these geographic differences. We're out of time and we're going to have to leave it there. Thanks to Jana Pulyarin, Senior Policy Fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations and head of its Berlin office. And to Thomas Kleiner-Brockhoff, GMF Guido Goldman Distinguished Scholar. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. I'm your host, Rachel Tausenfrein. And I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi-Nelson. Transatlantic Takeaway is a joint production by the German Marshall Fund in Common Ground Berlin. Our senior producer is Dina El-Sayed, and our social media editor is Stefano Montali. Common Ground Berlin is made possible through a grant administered by the German Ministry for Economic Affairs and Climate Action. In addition to Transatlantic Takeaway, all Common Ground Berlin and GMF's Out of Order episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to also check our respective podcasts' websites, commongroundberlin.com and gmfus.org.